This episode is sponsored by 077 Media, a boutique agency set up to help automotive and motorsport companies with everything from strategic planning, marketing support, to partnership management. For more information, visit www.077.media. He goes, so you want to interview Mario Andretti? And I'm like, does a bear poop in the woods? I mean, yeah, of course. Like, let's do this, right? What is it about cars? Why do we love these inanimate objects? Why do we scour auction sites looking for dream rides? Why do we spend our weekends meeting up with others to look and talk about each other's cars? Why do we spend hours creating builds on manufacturers' websites? Cars should be about more than just getting from A to B. My mission with this podcast is to share more about our tribe. This is Danny P on Cars. Welcome to Danny P on Cars and my next instalment. Today is a crossover episode featuring two podcast hosts who are really at the top of their game. Eric and Brad host the wildly popular Break Fix podcast, serving up content which includes consumer advice, regular news, and a few Halo guests. Their podcast is at the tip of the iceberg when we talk about their passion for cars. So I'm really excited for this episode. Brad and Eric, welcome to Danny P on Cars. Well, Danny, thanks for having us back. It's awesome to do a double crossover with you. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Glad looking to forward here. to this one. I know you guys do so much in the car world. The two of you do a great job of keeping car culture alive. Where did your passion for cars come from? Was it inherited or was it something else? For me, it started as a little kid. I come by it honestly. I've, I've mentioned before, my grandfather came to the United States post-World War II, and he actually got a job as a chauffeur for the Belgian embassy. And my dad grew up around big cars, limousines, things like that. Back then, chauffeurs had to turn wrenches, detail, and drive the ambassadors around. So there was a lot to that, you know, spending time in the garage. So my dad picked that up. And then because of where they lived in Italy, they lived just up from Fiordiano, which is the test track there at Maranello at the Ferrari factory. And he used to tell me stories as a kid, he would go down and hang out by the, the fences and he would watch Lauda on the test track. And he said, I always wanted to be a race car driver. And so growing up in my household, it was nothing but turning wrenches, going to autocrosses, track days, all that kind of stuff. And then it evolved into engine swaps and other crazy projects and then getting deeper involved with organizations like SCCA and the Porsche Club of America. So for me, I'm a third generation petrol head in this family. Mine also started as, you know, as a kid, but it didn't come from my father, it came from my mother. When I was born, she had a 70s Camaro uh, and she was kind of big in the, the cars and, and things like that. But my dad was more when he was a teenager, but he kind of grew out of it. You know, obviously we're immature, you know, so it hasn't, we haven't grown out of it yet. My love for cars and my, my love for music, I think both came from my mom. So I'm curious, Eric, have you been back to Italy to pay homage and, and go visit? 
I have several times over the years, and I've had my own stunts and adventures. And you know, now I'm not going to say near wrecking cars, but I've, I've gotten close to destroying a few because I wanted to be a rally driver when I was a kid, and that was impossible in the United States. But I had a lot of fun with my grandfather's Alto Bianchi or my other grandfather's Alfa Romeo, especially up in the mountains. And you know, I would I would say I would test their limits. But yeah, I've been to I've been to Maranello. We've been to the museum, to the factory, stuff like that. And for me. I feel right at home when I'm back. And I'm also super jealous of the cars that are running around in Italy that we'll never have here in the States. Brad, Camaro's in the 70s. So would you say you're a muscle car guy or have you kind of evolved your uh, your love from there? My love has kind of evolved to more German, but Volkswagen, Porsche specifically. And then I love Ferraris uh, and you know, anything Italian because who doesn't? I go back and forth. It depends on you. I change, you know, my, what I want in a car when I change my underwear, basically it's, it's that quick. Uh, one day I'll wake up and I'll want uh, a Chevy Nomad, you know, with a big block in it. And then the next day I'll want a Porsche 911 convertible. And then I want a G wagon or I want a Jeep lifted or, or something. Like that. It's, I just love all cars. So there's no, uh, basically I will never, be able to scratch the itch enough because I want everything. And unless I win the lottery, I'll go broken like a week. And enough. Brad's the reason why we have these never ending. What should I buy debates? It started on chat and then evolved into articles. And now they've become a sub series on our show called what should I buy? Where we sit down and pontificate and spend other people's money for hours at a time, because we can't just have one car or even two cars and sometimes maybe even six cars it's like a bag of lays potato chips you can't have just one started when uh back in 2013 i was looking for a track car and there were thousands i and i'm not exaggerating thousands of emails going back and forth between me eric and this other guy that we used to, to talk to and it was all about what track car should brad get and we would go back and forth through thousands of emails and i eventually ended up on a mark four Volkswagen mainly because they were cheap and I had them in the past. So it was a known, you know, quantity or known entity to Eric's point. You know, you can't have just one car. Really? The answer is just RS six Audi RS six does it all. How do you get the, the hair flowing in the wind in an RS six though? They've got the panoramic sunroof, don't they? Yeah. I believe there's something called AC two fifty five. There we go. In, in this case <laughs> might be twenty one fifty five. <laughs> Put down all 10 windows or whatever that car has. And then open the roof as well. That's, yeah, uh, you, when you're going 200 miles an hour, anything will blow your hair. True. So I, I'm curious then. So that's one element of the podcast that you folks run. And when you do the What Should I Buy episodes, is it a fictional person buying this car? Is it uh, you guys living out your dreams in terms of, in theory, lottery wins? How does it work? So if we do the Willy Wonka and we scratch that and reverse it, everything you said is 100% true. When it started out, to Brad's point, we were shopping for Brad or we were shopping for somebody else in the Grand Touring Motorsports Club because there's a club aspect to all this as well. But then it evolved into, hey, I want to buy my wife a new station wagon. And then we would, hey, let's let's debate that. Let's you know chat it out on Slack or let's do it as an episode, things like that. And then it sort of took a turn midway through the show where as we started to interview these juggernauts in the autosphere that had backgrounds at Motor Trend and other places where we started to invite them to the table. And then What Should I Buy began to mature. And there's a particular episode where you see it change over. And it's our What Should I Buy collector cars episode where we sort of rebooted the whole process. And now we were buying 
for a fictitious first-time collector. So that allowed us to be a little bit unbiased, but bring the the mantra was always to bring the craziest car to the table, not the commodity, you know, Camaro, Cuda, Mustang, those types of things. Try to find something different. Try to find something that makes the next cars and coffee entrant go, well, why did you buy that? Or what, why? You know, those kinds of things really kind of incite that intrigue about what a person bought. So we discount a lot of cars right away. We have some shopping buckets and criteria that we've created, but they've been really successful and actually probably one of our more popular episodes on the show. And people have thrown ideas even in our Facebook group. Can you do a what should I buy on X, which turned into muscle and malaise or turned into 80s cars or turned into, you know, Italian only cars, those kinds of things. And we just there's a never ending supply of genres and angles we can take for what should I buy. And Eric, to Eric's point, it does start out with criteria, fictional criteria that we put together for this person, you know, that's supposed to be buying one of these cars. And it's not just one person, it's multiple people because we build a, a price a tier in there as well. So what should you buy 50,000 and below or $50,001 to a hundred thousand? And it goes off on from there. If you listen to a What Should I Buy, you'll hear that it turns into complete chaos. All the rules go out the window. They all just want to talk about, or they, because I'm included, we all just want to talk about our favorite cars that fall into whatever the main title of the episode is. So everyone comes with their own hidden agenda, do they? Of course, of course. They, yes. they, they do, but we try to challenge our panelists as well because they are in the business. Some are brokers, some are journalists, et cetera. And we have one that will have aired probably by the time this comes out or close to it, where we're doing kit cars, replicas, clones, posers, we call them, things like that. And it's totally just out of left field because it's an undiscovered and untapped market of the collector world where it's like, why not own a Beck 550 Spider? What's wrong with that? And you will hear on more than one occasion, the Cadillac Elante recommended more than probably 10 times. I need Chrysler to look that TC. car up. Or, the, or the, the Chrysler yeah, TC or whatever. There's a whole education for me there, but it sounds like great car nerdery. Basically. 100%. I do want to talk more about your podcast, but I want to get there eventually, if that makes sense. How did the two of you meet? Well, it goes back 25 years now or so. Basically, we went to the same all-boys high school. They would put us in alphabetical order for assigned seating. And Brad happened to be behind me in alphabetical order. So I sat right in front of him. But there's more to that story, right, Brad? My favorite part about that is I would see this goofy looking kid, you know, come into school with this raucous 911 being dropped off every morning. And I I noticed it was the same kid that was in, you know, one of my classes. I had to ask him, was like, what in the world is going on with that car? It sounds amazing and terrible at the same time but it was his dad dropping him off or bringing him his homework because he left his book bag at school at home or whatever like that things like that i mean there's nothing quite like a 911 with megaphones running around between tight city streets just outside of dc so it is to brad's point raucous is the right word yeah and and before that point the most exciting car i'd ever really seen was my mom's Camaro or the box Chevy Caprice that I rode to school in an elementary school. I mean, those were those were the tip of the iceberg for the exciting cars that I had actually seen in person uh, until freshman year of high school and that 911 blew me away. That's, That's a- true. And we were also in the brotherhood of manual transmission owners because Brad had a four-speed Civic when he started driving. And I had probably the oddest duck in the parking lot 
which was an 87 and a half Audi Coupe GT, also a manual transmission. So you, you kind of bonded over that. There were a few of us that didn't drive automatic and we were in our own little club. So what was the 911? Was it some sort of outlaw? My dad picked it up for my mom. I'm going to put air quotes around that. In California, it was a 70911T that started as a 2.2 and it ended up with a 2.7 RS, legitimate 2.7 RS in it. And it was a wide body car. It had been done all steel. It had been done professionally. It looked like a 78 930 or 911 turbo. So he liked that turbo look. It was guards red. It had a Fuchs originally. Then I forget what wheels he put on it later. ROHs from Australia or something like that. But to Brad's point, got to get rid of the, the Bursch exhaust and all those other kinds of things that quiet down an air-cooled 911. We just put straight megaphones on there. No mufflers whatsoever. It's funny. When, when I was at school, everyone's parents were so embarrassing that you would want to be dropped off like, you know, half a mile down the road to walk into school. But with something like that, you kind of want to show up at the gates, don't you? You know, in the 90s... As, as we look back, owning a Porsche wasn't as cool as it is today. It was still one of these things like, ugh, you own a Porsche? What's, what, what's your deal? You know, and it hadn't been so widely accepted as it has become today. And you notice there is a culture change in the Porsche community. If you've got a car before the year 2000, which is also true in the Audi community, people are like, wait, they built cars then? Yeah, that kind of thing. But yeah, now they're seen as a symbol of status versus back then it was like, what the heck is this? In the UK in the 90s, they were a symbol of status. So we would have this thing in the 80s and 90s called yuppies. I don't know whether it probably didn't <laughs> they translate They drove BMWs to. here in the United States. Ah, yeah, in the UK, the yuppies would would drive well, they would drive some BMWs but also Porsches and uh, you know they'd have their car phones in the middle of the Porsche and and things like that. Porsche really got its foothold in California in the early days in the United States. So car culture out there is different, it's more accepting. Porsches were everywhere here on the East Coast. If you owned a Porsche, it was almost offensive, right? And I remember my dad saying, he's like, you know, people are just, they just, you could tell like jealousy on their face. They'll cut you off in traffic or they'll, they'll, you know, do weird stuff to you while you're driving around. And so it became to a point where he actually just parked it for a while because he was like, this is just annoying to go down the beltway and either people are angry. Nowadays, you go down the road in a classic 911 and people are giving you the thumbs up because they haven't seen one in 10, 20 years. It's amazing how times change and perceptions change, isn't it? I know you're both big into motorsport. Do you guys race? Well, yes, and then some. So Brad and I both came up through a system here in the States called HPDE, or High Performance Drivers Education. But even before that, we competed in something known as autocross, which is where they set up the slalom courses and whatnot with cones on big parking lots and things like that. So we've graduated through, we went to H through HBDE, we became instructors. So we teach what, as we jokingly refer to as wannabe race car drivers, spent a lot of time in the right seat with fantastic cars and fantastic people teaching them how to you know drive their cars the way they were intended to be. And then both of us ended up graduating into time trials and not club racing, which was the combination or hybrid of autocross and track driving where you're competing against the clock, against other cars in your class, but you're on a, you know, on a circuit or on a road course. So I've been doing that for a bunch of years. Brad sort of retired when he sold his car, <laughs> but we still coach. We're still involved. We're still in the community. As Eric said, yeah, we started in autocross and then HPDE. He obviously was in autocross a lot more than, than I was. I kind of got into it 
after high school when I bought my first Volkswagen, I ran into him and, you know, kind of went down that path. But his father was like a champion autocrosser uh, in the area. Uh, so that's where he, he got his uh, start. Uh, and then, yeah, I sold my car a few years ago when my first son was born. Uh, I wanted something. I knew I wasn't going to have time to do it. Uh, or the resources. So I, I bought something else that was more dual purpose street track. And so no more competition for me, other than, unless it's virtual. What did you sell, Brad? My Mark IV, Mark IV Volkswagen GTI. And who do you guys instruct for? Is it the PCA or is it somewhere else? We're both Motorsport Safety Foundation certified, so we can pretty much walk into any organization that needs our help. We do have some favorites, but I mean, I've instructed for Chin, for Hooked on Driving, for PCA, for SCCA, for EMRA, BMW Club, Audi Club. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Some of the little, you know, mom and pop shops all the way up to the big ones. So the nice thing is once you've gone through a certification process like MSF, or we both went through and got certified with SCCA, which is the Sports Car Club of America, through their boot camp we can go pretty much anywhere we want. Brad, any stories of when you were instructing, any stories of uh, uh, wild experiences? We call those code brown moments. Code <laughs> brown moments. I love it. I mean, I was always pretty cool under pressure, at least in the moment. Funny enough, you know, I was single for most of my HPDE instructing time, and Eric always ended up being the chief instructor. And for some reason, I always found myself in the right seat of a woman's car. And I, I couldn't really figure out what was going on there. I don't know if Eric was trying to play matchmaker or what. Accidentally on purpose, Brad. It just, it just, it just kind of conveniently happened that way. One moment that really sticks out is we were at Dominion Raceway in Virginia. It's not a very safe track. The walls are pretty much right up against the track uh, in certain sections. And I was instructing this, this young lady in a 370Z. Uh, it was set up for drag strip. So it wasn't set up for, for road course. Funny enough, she didn't bring her Mark V R32, which was more like capable for, for road racing at that time. But she brought her drag car out with like 500 horsepower uh, in this 370Z. And we were literally going down the straight, down one of the back straights. And for whatever reason, it lost traction, spun and hit the wall. I say hit the wall, it grazed the wall and scuffed up the rear bumper. That was the, instructing-wise, that was the biggest Code Brown moment I've ever had. Wow. Well, I, I, he has left a part of not just this story out, but he has also earned his landscaping merit badge several times. He asked specifically about instructing. <laughs> we we will get to the other stories. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like there's a whole Pandora's box of stories right here. So but presumably both people walked away from that crash. Oh yeah, we we pulled into the pit, which is you know procedural. Uh, after you know, anytime you go four off the track, the car was fine, other than the cosmetic damage on the rear bumper. Um, so we finished the session. We went right back out and finished the session. Um, the rest of the day, the the car did great, and given the circumstances, the driver did great, and uh, yeah, it was it was fine after that. We don't give out awards on this show, but if we did, the award to the best wingman would go to Crew Chief Eric. I try. I concur. <laughs> I try. So if I was to ask you who was the quicker driver out of the two of you, would there be a debate or would it be a, a, a foregone conclusion? No debate. Eric's always been my kind of benchmark, what I've been striving for. He's got more experience. He's more aggressive on the racetrack. He's got that killer instinct that I just never have. So... Whenever I'm driving, you know, and if he and I are in the same car uh, or similar cars, if I can get within a second of Eric, uh, I'm I'm doing pretty good. Well, thank you, Brad. I appreciate that. 
Are there any experiences you folks have had in terms of perfect laps with perfect cars? I think I've had many more disappointing laps with perfect cars. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, I have this adage, never drive your heroes. For us, you know, when even when we debate on what should I buy, we get accused a lot of the time of not liking certain cars because we get to see the ugly side of vehicles. Tested at their limits on the racetrack, especially certain racetracks on the East Coast because of natural elevation or their design, they are a testament to the vehicle's capabilities, its suspension setup or otherwise. And so what you think is going to be really awesome turns out to be one of the most upsetting rides you've ever been in, whether it's in the right seat or behind the wheel. I don't know that there's a perfect lap yet other than not to boast, but some of the track records that I've set or some of the club records that I've broken, even then I came in going, ah, the car really wasn't where I wanted it to be. Or, you know, I destroyed a set of Hoosiers to do this or something like that. And you walk away from it and you look at it and you're at the top of the leaderboard and it's like, well, okay, I guess I there have to make a concession there. After being in even even Brad, after being in hundreds and hundreds of cars over the years, it's hard to say which one is the best or which one's been perfect. For me, I've really only driven my car uh, with, with a handful of occasions. I'm very cautious when it comes to driving other people's cars on, on a racetrack. Um, so I kind of just set this rule that I'm only really going to drive my car. I know I can afford to fix my car if something goes square, um, but I can't afford to fix somebody's 911 or uh, BMW M3 or something like that. Um, but for me, the most satisfying time on a racetrack was when I was at VIR and my little Mark IV Volkswagen was dynoed 193 horsepower. And I was going neck and neck with this Porsche Cayman. He was hanging with me um, in the straights, obviously, because he's a much faster car. Um, but then I kept blowing him away um, when it came to the turns and everything. I kept trying to give him the point by it because, you know, it's, uh, you know, HPD, it's not a race or anything. And he just kept waving it off because he just wanted to stay behind me. And then we pulled into the pit after the fact. He's like, I just wanted to follow you and see your lines because you're so quick in that car. That was the most satisfying moment, I think, for me. There must be an adage around that, something like a fast driver in a slow car is better than a slow driver in a fast car there is in our world they say learn how to drive a slow car fast and then you can drive anything fast there's also something to be said for front wheel drive being able to drive a front wheel drive fast as well yeah, yeah that is a that is a dark art into itself and and for a lot of people it's unfortunately counterintuitive and you get two reactions a, I don't understand how you drive this thing, or B, this car isn't supposed to do that. But if you watch any of the European touring car or any of that kind of stuff, there's tons of Renault Clios and Fiats and other front-wheel drive cars in the mix with you know their bigger brothers coming from BMW and Alfa Romeo and other brands. So it's interesting always to see the underdog, the front-wheel drives, you know, competing with those bigger cars and doing well. It seems like the front-wheel drive is a bit of a dying breed, you know, with more companies going to all-wheel drive or, you know, rear-wheel drive. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic. And you know what's funny? That puts a smile on my face. Anytime, you know, we take out one of the older Volkswagens against maybe its all-wheel drive counterpart or one of the newer generations everybody touts, you know, the tricky diff and all-wheel drive and big turbos. And here you are in a 200-horsepower GTI and you're either going around them or you're keeping right up on top of them. So there's something to be said about that simplicity and that weight, the weight penalty that you're not taking on for all that technology and added drivetrain. So 
Yeah, sounds like there should be a Colin Chapman quote in here somewhere. (laughs) I wonder, what are your, do you folks have track cars right now? I know, um, Brad, you mentioned that you've traded to to be a bit more sensible, but but what do you guys take to the track right now? I still have two, and then I have a third that I'm sort of converting from a pro solo car to more of a cars and coffee car. So in the fleet, I've got a Time Attack Audi TT front-wheel drive that makes about 400 wheel horsepower. And then I have the slower car, which is a VR6 GTI that my sister and I share. Both of them have time trials championships under their belts. And then my third one is a 74914.6 wide body that, again, was a nationally ranked pro solo car that my dad drove. So I inherited that one and it's in the middle of a motor swap and I'm trying to make it more of a boulevard cruiser, kind of get your attention at the cars and coffee type of car. 914 is difficult to drive, uh, whether at autocross or at the track. So I'm trying to make it a little bit more manageable. I do plan to do some parade laps with it with it with the amount of money i'm spending on restoring it it, i want it to be more of a showpiece and an homage to my dad uh, since he passed away uh, almost a decade ago now so it'll be good to see that car back on the road why is it a difficult car to drive because if you look at the the breakdown of the car you've got the engine behind you you would kind of expected to have a good balance what makes it difficult the weight distribution of the 914 is awesome the Paleozoic era suspension and components and everything that was carried over from the Beetle and the 356 is what makes it difficult to drive. It's manual everything, manual brakes, manual steering, manual clutch, all of it. And so as light as it is at 1800 pounds with me in it, it's still very difficult to drive because it's very twitchy. You have no moment of relaxation when you're behind the wheel. It's a little cramped. But also when you magnify its horsepower from what it originally came with, which what it, a, a 1.8 liter 914 made, what, less than 100 horsepower in 1974. And here we are making 350 at one point when we had a 964 twin spark in it. That's a lot for that car to handle. I'm trying to detune it to around 225 using the engine that I've chosen at that point. It's still going to be a handful at 2x the horsepower it was intended for i gotta imagine it was very difficult to drive in an autocross with the 911 motor you had in it too because you had a left hand on the wheel and your right hand was on the fire extinguisher (laughs) turning around putting out the fire that always happened every single lap at the autocross (laughs) you know i will never live that down and yes it had a backfire issue at one point where you were never sure if it was going to flame through the intake or not but you know, we sorted that out later. When that mo- motor out. <laughs> that motor ended up in a 77 911. So, you know, I don't know if it was better or worse. It sounds like Eric does his own stunts as well as doing the, the race drive. <laughs> yeah, he does. Eric, you'll have to tell him about the TT at VIR. <laughs> uh-huh. Which time? Not, not his TT, somebody, a, a, a oh, student's TT. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting money shift operation. <laughs> So for those familiar with VIR, we came out of hog pen, which is turn 17 onto the front straightaway. And my student grabbed second gear instead of fourth gear. It, I think it did somewhere around 10,000 RPM. We didn't see any smoke. We didn't hear anything. And we're like, well, drop it into fourth and let's see if it keeps pulling. Car is doing fine. We come around, turn one, turn two, turn three, headed to the lower S's. And suddenly there is just smoke pouring out of everywhere. Get off the side of the track. And the corner worker is within earshot. He goes, y'all are on fire. Y'all are on fire. Get out of the car. We're like, okay. So I run up and 
you going to do anything about it? And at meanwhile, my student opens the hood, which makes matters worse. And he hands me a fire extinguisher. She goes, you can put it out yourself. Have a good time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, boy. So there I am trying to put out an oil fire because it blew a hole in the back of the block about three inches around. And it was pouring oil down on top of the exhaust manifold and the turbo. So needless to say, that car hopefully has a second life and the motor has been replaced at this point. If not, it's been turned into a barbecue. hundred <laughs> percent. Wow. That must have been pretty scary. So Brad, what do you take to the track at the minute? Uh, I actually haven't been to the track since the August of 2020 comes from having a baby and, and I did pick up a Mark V Volkswagen R32 to be my dual purpose. It still needs a little bit of work. I haven't had a chance to get it to a racetrack, but that will be one of my options. The other option, Eric always, you know, as generous as he, as he is, gives me the opportunity to, to take out the VR6 that he has if I ever want to, uh, as long as Tanya's not using it, his sister uh, or anything like that. So between those two, um, those will be what I would take to the racetrack. Got Unless it. I rent a Hearst Mustang. That's a good idea. I like that. I can't wait till it seems like at the moment none of these car companies are renting the Corvette, but I remember in times gone by the Hertz used to have Corvettes and things like that. But uh, mm-hmm, yeah. so hopefully at some point. But it sounds like you've got a couple of options there and uh, I think the R thirty two has got to be a really good platform to work from to build out a race car from, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I would say it is. And it's got, it's plenty of power. It's torquey. It's, it gets out of its own way. It's just a, a bit heavy. My car weighs like probably 3,400 pounds, what, four or 500 pounds more than my my previous car uh, with the all-wheel drive system and the, the bigger motor and everything like that. So um, a little a little pudgy <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for, for, for a hatchback, I would say. Yeah, I've got a, a special spot in my heart for... For VWs and did, did you folks get the Corrado over here? Yeah, my dad purchased a, one of the early VR6 Corrados uh, way back when. Flash red. I actually learned to drive on that car, although I took my driver's test in a TDI Passat. Yeah, because <laughs> my dad thought it would be more sensible. Although the Passat was much bigger than the Corrado. I grew up in Chiracos, starting from the Mark Ones to the Mark Twos. My dad had one of the first sixteen valves in the country. He actually special ordered it triple black, which meant black leather, black paint, and black basket weave BBS wheels, which was a special wow. option back then. And you know, and then when he got rid of that, we ended up with Audi coupes, both first and second generation, Quattros and non. And then yeah, we ended up with a Corrado, which you know was VW's Ferrari. I always used to lust after growing up. I did a one of the last Corrados, and I don't know if they did it worldwide or just for the UK market or the European market, but they did a VR6 Storm edition, and it was like the last, and it had all the you know the extra stuff, and that that was a car I definitely lusted after. So we we talked when I was on your podcast about criminal record cars a little bit, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to revisit this for this one. Uh, so a criminal record car, just for definition, and I think we need to get it in the English Oxford Dictionary, but is a car that you own. And it's a car that, that can't have been inherited. And it's a car, essentially, you would be embarrassed to admit in public, uh, definitely drive up to the school gates in or be driven up to the school gates in. And I just wondered if either of you had cars that you might be a little bit ashamed of owning. It's a good thing I didn't take ownership of one of them, so that doesn't count. <laughs> I think it counts. It was parked in your driveway, possessions nine-tenths of the law. I never signed the title. I never registered it. <laughs> What was it? Oh, it was a Corvette Yellow 2003 Pontiac Aztec GT. Blimey. It's it's almost an embarrassment to put the word Corvette Yellow on any car 
that is not a Corvette, isn't it? Uh, it is, it was, but that, that's what makes that it better. Make it sound cool. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because yeah. outside of that, we never owned anything really embarrassing. I mean, even my Mark II GTI, where the water pump fell out of it and it left me stranded on the side of the road more times than I can count, that wasn't an embarrassment because it was a 16-valve Mark II. Everybody loves those cars. I mean, we've strived to buy all sorts of interesting cars over the years. Even my wife has some really cool taste and she'll buy like the performance model of something. And even now she drives a minivan, but when we bought it, it's a hybrid. It's the S edition. It's got all this other stuff. It's D chrome. She literally ordered wheels the day we were picking it up, right? All this kind of stuff. So nothing is stock around here. So it's hard to pinpoint anything out of the Aztec, which we ended up getting it as a gag because it was donated to us by the Aztec Owners Club. Wow. I would say your wife's Beretta would be her criminal record. Oh, yeah. You know what? But I, that wasn't mine. That was hers. So yeah. I, I'll give you that. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of association with criminal record, but no admission of guilt. So uh, That's right. That's yeah. right. He's, he's Bri- guilty by association. Guilty by association. And uh, yeah, I'm sure one of the amendments you can plead, I'm not sure which one would be appropriate. The, 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 that would probably be the Fifth Amendment. The there. Fifth Amendment. Yeah. There we go. Uh, um, Brad, what about yourself? You know, I'm not really embarrassed by any of the cars that I've ever purchased. Oh, there is one, Brad. There's one you constantly like to have amnesia, selective amnesia about. No, I, I, the only reason I'm embarrassed by it is the fact that it never ran, but I would have loved driving that car. It was the whole reason of buying it. It was a 924 turbo. Nice. That's definitely not a criminal record car. I don't think. No, no. I, I, I think the closest thing I have to a criminal record car a 2010 Honda Civic I bought as a little commuter car. And then... Boring. Just, exactly. See, the, my, my criminal record cars are just boring. I, I've never bought like a pink Corvette or anything that I would be embarrassed you know, to roll around the streets in. No, that's fair enough. I think there's no sentences being issued today. So you guys get out of jail and, uh, and get to continue on with, uh, with your love of cars. Perfect. We're about 40 minutes in. So let's take a really quick break. Uh, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to Danny B on Cars, and I'm with Brad and Eric. We've been talking about their podcast, but I want to dig a little bit more. We've also been talking about how the two met, their love of cars. We've established they don't have any criminal record cars, but they do have a lot of a great experience and some great stories about being on the track. So in part two, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the podcast. How did the podcast start? We were doing journalism for many, many years, kind of reporting on different events, things we were going to. We were talking about things that had transpired within the Grand Touring Motorsports Club. As I mentioned, there's a 100-person-plus club that's kind of behind the scenes here where we would get together and go to different you know, events, whether it was field trips or track events, et cetera. So we would report on that. We would do retro test drives, all sorts of other stuff that just suited our fancy because Brad and I both like to write. And so it was just kind of fun. And what started with a blog turned into the gtmotorsports.org website that you see today. Some of it has been split. Some of it's very club centric and that it lives somewhere else. For a long time, our members kept saying, I don't have time to read because I'm either behind the windshield, you know, traveling the beltways, going to work, or I'm headed to the track and I have a ton of windshield time. It'd be really cool if a lot of these articles were in podcast form. And like anybody else that wanted to start a podcast, we weren't really sure how to get started. And this was pre-pandemic. So we're talking years prior to that. But also Brad in the background kept saying to me, does anybody really care what we have to say? Like, are they going to listen to this thing? Should we really do it? And then the pandemic happened. And like 
every two white guys in America, we decided to start a podcast. We reached out to friends that were already in the business. And oddly enough, going back to our origin story of meeting in high school, it wasn't until our reunion, our 20th reunion, that we talked to other guys that were on the radio, that were in podcasting, et cetera. And they were like, man, you should just do it. Now's the time to do it. And this was, again, just before the pandemic hit. And so we started doing our research, started talking to them, reaching back, finding other mentors and figuring out what we needed to do, learning from them, their lessons learned. Like I said, June of 2020, we released our first episode, even though we had already been pre-recording and staging up until that point to, to launch. And the rest is sort of downhill from there, isn't it, Brad? Yeah, I mean, that's that's it, basically. I mean, the podcast has changed over time. Obviously, we've matured. Our goals have changed, you know, as, as we've gotten older. Um, but yeah, that's that's the origin story. Basically, we're just sitting around. We wanted to find a way to stay connected during the pandemic as well. And that's what really got us over the hump to, to just do it, just get it out there and mm -hmm. see what happens. And there is a little bit more to that, to Brad's point. It has evolved. The first season, which all podcasters apologize for their first season of any show, really is designed to migrate our readership to our listenership. So you're going to find a lot more stories about members, profiles, things that were going on on the East Coast, especially in the racing community. And then right about season two, when you start to encounter things like Vet Motorsports, where we had Pete Klein on and other guests like that, you begin to see what we call our Road to Success series, where people are coming on and sharing their stories. And that really falls in line with something one of our dealers, The Parted, used to always say to us, which was, you need to capture the stories of the people around the paddock because motorsports is a sport of convenience, not of loyalty. And you'll see a trend. There's a lot of long timers, but there's also folks that are there for two or three seasons. They disappear. And you're used to hearing the stories around the campfire, around the paddock. Oh, da, 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 this and this and that. And remember when Paul did that, when Pat did this other thing? And then suddenly you realize you're standing in the paddock and they're gone. And you're the only one with those stories. Even though they're colloquial in a sense, they're still cool and fun stories. They're adventures that we went on. And so our friend Matt kept saying, everybody has a story. You really need to capture these stories. Everybody has a story. And that became the battle cry for the show. And you'll see a rebrand in the show right in the middle of season two or so when he passed away. And so that gave us this additional kind of charge to keep his ideology going through the show. Would it be fair to say that there's almost three or four different types of podcast within your podcast? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair statement. We have what we call story arcs. And so you have original, what we call just kind of GTM stories, the original break fix stories that you'll see in season one. We call those kind of the normal stories. Then you have the Road to Success series, which is going to be some of your celebrities, some folks that have these bootstrap stories where they've done something in the autosphere, women of the autosphere, stuff like that. It all gets kind of lumped into that category. Then you have the drive-through news, which we started really early in the show. It was actually in our second month. And that's a it's a monthly news roundup where we fly through what's been happening since the month previous. And we try to give our audience the ability to digest content that's on the internet in a very compressed form so they don't have to read the articles, kind of going back to that season one uh, idea. On average, we plow through 40 to 50 articles in a two-hour episode. It's the only episode that we have 
we give ourselves the ability to have a much, much longer format because we only do it once a month. We also have our uh, History of Motorsport series, which is sponsored by the International Motor Racing Research Center and the Society of Automotive Historians and, and places like that. And that lets us go deep into the past. It lets us work with academics. It lets us tell some of the either untold stories or forgotten stories of motorsports long gone by. I mean, some of these stories go back to the 19 teens, uh, but they're very interesting. They're captivating. They're also a lot shorter, about a half an hour, very digestible. We have pit stop minisodes, which is all the fun outtakes, bloopers, and sometimes like a part two or a part B or what Brad likes to call the B side of an episode. And so we'll release those sometimes through our Patreon, other times through our server. We have What Should I Buy, which we mentioned at the top of the conversation. And, and that's a fan favorite. Literally, it's something for everyone. If you're a car lover, there, there's something in there for you. Yep. And we like to keep our audience on their toes so they never know what's going to come out in the release schedule. Who's going to be there? It could be a celebrity. It could be a regular Joe like us. It could be a What Should I Buy. You never know. So that's why you got to tune in every week. Brad, any episodes that you feel either really most proud of or any episodes that have been real highlights for you? Uh, some of the we did one talking about the connection between music and the automotive, uh, I guess, culture. That was a really great episode that we put together. Um, one that we put together was Big Guy in a Little Car. It was talking about just we, we had one. a panel of tall guys uh, and we all just kind of, you know, waxed angrily about uh, everything wrong with the automotive industry and how they don't cater to people that are over six foot tall uh, and things like that those were some of my favorites and then any of the uh interviews that eric has done uh, on his own i think one of my favorites is obviously the andretti uh, episode uh, and then eric didn't do this one on his own but we had an artist from from la uh he, he's uh, pinstriper chris uh, he lives out in la now and he's actually from the East Coast from our area, um, which was, you know, a pleasant surprise to find out when we were talking to him. He's a he was a really interesting guest as well. You mentioned the Andretti episode. There's quite a few Andrettis uh in the, the world of uh, automotive and motorsport. So how did the interview come about and which Andretti was it? It was the it's it's a me, Mario Andretti. That's Super Mario. One. Yeah, Super Mario himself. So that was a really interesting get, as Brad likes to call our guests sometimes. It's a good get. I got reached out to by one of our affiliates who works with us closely on other episodes. And shout out to William Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace. And he calls me and he goes, hey, so I got a guest that you might want to interview. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, kind of get to the point. And he's giving me this whole preamble. He goes, so you want to interview Mario Andretti? And I'm like, does a bear poop in the woods? I mean, yeah, of course, like, let's do this, right? So what, what's got to be involved? It was a process, and I won't go into all the details of doing it. But I will say that we got to talk to Mario about things that I think a lot of other shows haven't been able to touch on before. And we did that on purpose. We really wanted to focus on Formula One, his time at Le Mans, his time with Jackie X, his time with Villeneuve and Peroni during Formula One, his time with Enzo, how he worked with Colin Chapman to develop ground effects at Lotus. Some of these things that just don't get addressed. And so 
It was in preparation for the 100th Le Mans, and it aired during Indy 500 month. So it was a lot. It was just at the right time in the right place. Obviously, we had to displace a lot of guests because he took a priority and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was absolutely amazing. And he is so technically astute. He's very sharp at 84 years old. He's still passionate about racing. He said he's about to jump back into another formula car to set another record. I guess it has to do with his age or something like that. And he, he did talk about his time driving the new McLaren and what that was like. And I mean, just absolutely unbelievable wealth of information, but a hero to us all. And and even if you're not into cars, the name Andretti alone, just you get excited. You're like, whoa, Mario Andretti, that's pretty cool. I think there was a bet, wasn't there, with Zach Brown? And as a result, he got to drive one of... Uh... One of the McLaren F1 cars, which, uh, That's, you know, you've got to be pretty special to be trusted at that age in that sort of car. So, <laughs> and you um, did great. If you, Brad and I both watched his lines at Laguna and at Coda where he's driven the car, and you're just like, man, he is on point. He has not lost his mojo. Maybe he doesn't have the speed that the young kids have, but. I mean, his lines are perfect, if nothing else. So would you say that's kind of been the pinnacle so far? We were very fortunate that it coincided with our 200th episode. So we were really able to celebrate the show and everything we have done and how we had grown up until that point and how we continue to grow. But is it the best? It's sort of like picking your favorite child, right? Every episode brings something different to the table, brings a different level of inspiration, there's a whole cast of characters that have been on the show. Some have been back, you know, some want to be back. We're still trying to schedule with folks, you know, getting touch-ups and where are they now sorts of situations. You take things as crazy as the Randy Lanier backstory. We did that as sort of a VH1, where is he now situation? Because a lot of people were like, oh, his new book is out. You know, he just got out of jail. I'm like, no, he's been out for seven years. What's he been doing for three quarters of a decade? So sitting down with Randy was awesome. You know, Lynn St. James is another example. Dennis Gage, from my classic car, sitting down with one of my childhood heroes, John Davis from Motor Week. They're all really cool and they bring something different to the table, each and every one of them. And we're hoping that if you're out there listening to this or you're listening to our show, that maybe they inspire you to get into the autosphere and, and get a job or a career or learn how they work their way through the system way back when. I believe that all podcasters have a secret list of guests they would love to have on their podcast. Oh, yeah. And I just wondered who uh, who would be, you know, maybe the top three from both of you. Well, we have this concept around the office called Mount Everest, right? Now, it's a bit of a Kevin Bacon game, kind of also like The Price is Right, where the hill climber goes up to the top. We never want to go straight to the top of Mount Everest. We sort of want to work our way up the mountain, you know, establishing base camps and things like that, because it allows us to get to other guests. And as Brad likes to put it, it's the thing that leads to the next thing. But for me, at the top of Mount Everest, there's two people. Unfortunately, there would be three, but one of them's uh, passed away <laughs> during COVID. So it leaves me with two. And one of them is the famed designer from Ital Design, which is Jujaro. And the other is the queen of rally herself, Michelle Mouton. I know that the folks at Dirtfish, which is our, our local rally school, had Michelle Mouton come and talk last year at the women motorsport event that they run so maybe there's a connection there i can help you with eric on that one brad who would be on your list i want to talk to patrick dempsey mick dreamy mick dreamy yeah, yeah. and then in his uh what is it, proton uh Pro proton racing uh his lamont team uh, and then i haven't talked about this with eric but i think it'd be really cool to get jackie chan and his you know, connection to Lamar. And how did that happen? <laughs> I like that. And, and you know what? I do have a third, Danny. I'm going to take it back. And I think Brad and I could share in this one as well, because he's talking celebrities. So I'm going to go Hollywood. You reminded me. 
Eric Banner. He the, is the a Australian car guy. He's yeah. like a V8 muscle car, but like Holden, isn't he? I think and Ford from he, Australia. He's he was Ford, like a Ford Falcon. Right. XBGT, that's right, like yeah. Mad Max. And I don't know the story about Jackie Chan and Lamont. What I do know is that he was in one of the Cannonball films. What was the story with Lamont and Jackie Chan? Well, he's he's owned a series of race teams that have run in the LMP2 you know, for the last few years. He didn't his teams didn't run this year. In the previous years, he he had a series of teams and they actually did fairly well. I always struggle to find a car to root for. I don't watch a lot of WEC, um, so I root for the IMSA cars when they go over. Seeing his name on a car got me excited. That's what made LMP2 exciting for a while because otherwise it was like Rebellion, the Bacardi cars, like all those. You're like, ah, yeah, okay, whatever. But Jackie Chan. I'm I'm with you all the way. And you know if there's going to be a punch up in the paddock, <laughs> you know which side you want to be on, don't you? Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to fight against his his drivers. Yeah, I mean that's more NASCAR. I think we're very lucky in living in the US because we have great motorsport and we have great car events. I just wondered if uh, either of you had been to uh, any any fun car events this year that you'd like to talk about well, we dedicated a couple drive-through episodes to talking about those didn't we brad uh we did eric's definitely been to a lot more events than i have i think we kicked off the year with 24 hours of rolex yeah that was good to be back at rolex to see the cars that were going to be at Le Mans if you couldn't make it to france so that was at daytona and what was that like i, I went to daytona for the first time this year and was just so impressed with the facilities. It's it's like a like a Greek amphitheater for me in terms of uh, what it looks like. But what was it like to go do the twenty four hours there? It was exhausting, and it was different this time around um, because I guess everybody was cooped up during COVID and they couldn't get out, so they had all this this pent up energy and, and desire to get out and go experience something. So the crowd was a lot larger at this year's uh, 24 hour Daytona versus the previous year we went it, just a lot of uh, walking <laughs> the facility as you, you mentioned is huge there's basically one way into the infield one way out you have to walk around the entire grandstands so be prepared to walk when you go the night racing is always really fun we didn't stay this year for the night racing we went back to uh, an Airbnb um, but the previous year we stayed and tried to stay up as long as we could and just watching the cars it, at night is when all the the action happens you know, the temperatures drop, tire pressures uh, change, grip changes, you know, cars start to break. It, it's it's definitely an experience. Would I go again? I, I, I'm going to need a few years before I decide I want to go again. Uh, I think I had more fun at the Salem Six Hours a couple years ago. It's the same kind of atmosphere. Well, it's a different atmosphere than... Uh, than Daytona because it's not as large or as grand, um, but it's more condensed too. So uh, the, it's a six-hour race. There's a lot of support races that go along with it, uh, and it's just a lot of fun. If you haven't been to an IMSA race, period, a lot of fun. Everything's accessible. I met Jordan Taylor, Watkins Glen, at the Sanguins race. Um, the drivers are accessible. The cars are accessible. Uh, it's just an amazing time. Best bang for the buck in terms of admission price, if you, especially if you're doing racing on a budget. Because if you look at the price of Formula One tickets, they're nearly three times what an IMSA ticket costs. And I don't need to buy paddock access. I don't need to buy this and that or this other special thing. IMSA is very open. To Brad's point, you can be right in the pit stalls and in the pit boxes. They put up, you know, a little, you know, seatbelt style fence between you and 
you know, the LMP1 Cadillac, but you're four inches from it. You can reach out and touch it if you want to. You're that close, which is really nice. And there's a lot of other racing that you can't get that close to either the action or to the engineers or to the teams or anything like that. So IMSA is always a favorite. SRO is a close second, which is World Challenge. It's very similar in terms of structure and, and style. To Brad's point, Rolex was awesome because we got to see it through new eyes. We took our executive producer with us, uh, who heads up our drive-through series, and she's been around racing her whole life, but had never been to a 24-hour endurance race. So we said, well, you got to do your first one and you've got to do it at Rolex because it'll give you the sense of what the rest of them are like. And then you can choose to whether or not you want to go to any of the others. From there, there was a bunch of other events in between. And as I mentioned, I was at the 100th Le Mans, which was absolutely phenomenal. I'm still trying to put it all back together because it was a lot of sleepless nights. And then I followed that up with a trip to Denmark and then to Montreal. And then after that, I came home for a short, brief period. And then I got inundated with 10 days of car week out in Monterey. That was an interesting perspective on on car culture, right? I've, I've been invited so many times to car week, but never on press passes. You're there because it's your job. And it's a whole different way to look at the week and the atmosphere of it and getting behind the scenes to a lot of different people and events that you wouldn't normally get access to. So that was a lot of fun. And my year isn't over yet, right? We've got track events coming up. We've got other things that we're going to. And then I'm kind of finishing out the year here on the East Coast at Petit Le Mans. So I'm taking my girls. I took my eldest daughter last year to her first pro race at Watkins Glen, and she absolutely loved it. And she couldn't wait to go back. She's a big fan of the Flying Lizard team. So shout out to Andy Lee and the guys over there. And what age but- are we talking about for these daughters? So they're nine and six, yeah. uh, you know, and they're they're coming by cars, honestly. And, you know, kind of secret agenda of the show, too, is hopefully, you know, they look back on all these people that we interview and they get inspired to become a woman of the auto sphere and find themselves a job in the in the industry. So, you know, I'm taking them to Petit. So that ought to be a lot of fun. It's a little bit longer than the last race I took them to. So it's a tw- it's an 11 hour, you know, 10 and a half hour or whatever it's scheduled as. But there is that night racing aspect that Brad talks about, which is super exciting. And you get the whole mix, the whole fleet, LMP1 through GT, GTAM cars in that race. I've, I've only ever done one 24 hour race, which was Le Mans. Uh, it was quite a few years ago. I think it was 2009. But there is something magical about watching a race at night. Let's move on to a quick fire round. These questions are in intentionally quick fire, but it doesn't matter if we dig into a little bit deeper on some of them. It's just to kind of spark the conversation. Do you have a favorite movie or TV car? The Defender from NBC's Viper. I'll elaborate a little bit on this. So this was a show about a Dodge Viper that had special properties, but it also had a Defender in it. So they called it the Defender. And so what it was, was a re- reimagination of Knight Rider, sponsored by the Chrysler Corporation at that point. It was right on the heels of the Viper being introduced. And so they built this cop drama around it. And the special property of the Defender is that this base Viper RT-10 could morph into a Viper Coupe, which was interesting foreshadowing of whether or not the Defender came before the idea of the Viper GTS Coupe. And the Viper GTS Coupe was actually cameoed on an episode of the show before it was ever released to the public and things like that. So for me, it's it holds a special place in my heart, even though I grew up with Knight Rider and a bunch of other shows, but the Defender was was it. How is it that Jaguar Land Rover didn't sue? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Um, <laughs> presumably they have the rights to the name Defender. And NBC has good lawyers. Yeah, I would imagine so. I'd imagine so. Brad, how about yourself? I don't know that I have one that would be a favorite, 
but there are a couple that have inspired some of my automotive purchases. Um, one is definitely the S8 from Ronin, the 928 from Scarface. Uh, I love uh, I love both of those uh, those cars. And then like the Batmobiles and stuff like that, all those those fun things. But I really enjoy the uh, the R8 Spider, uh, the Iron Man R8 Spider. I don't go as kooky crazy as Eric does with all the the guns and the lights and all that. I mean, my second choice is Keaton's Batmobile from the '89 Batman. I mean, there's what else is there? Which I've I've seen on the streets of DC. It's awesome. <laughs> With a guy wearing a cape in it, or I no, would be wearing no, a cape no. in it. <laughs> he was wearing a straitjacket. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, he was stopped by the police and yeah, put in a straitjacket. Exactly. You're the second person to mention the Ronan car. So my very first episode I had the guys from the steering committee, uh, and I think it was Ryan mentioned uh, mentioned it. But I don't think we've had the other cars. I think we've had the Batmobile, but maybe the George Barris version, which was the original one. I've seen that in DC as well. See, n- nobody likes the Citroen Xantia that was in Ronin. What's wrong with you guys? That's a, it's a beautiful French car. And or some the Volvo here. from, uh, what was it? The, shoot, the Val Kilmer movie. Oh, the, the C70 Saint. from The Saint. Yes, The Saint, that's it. But it, that car was used in the original series of The Saint as well, I think. The P-1800 was used, yeah. We do crossovers with a movie podcast every once in a while. What's their podcast called? Let's give it a shout out. Everything I Learn From Movies. And, uh, and look out for the crossover episodes. Uh, I think I've seen most of the Batmobiles in the Peterson Museum. So shout out to the folks at the Peterson. They tend to have uh, have a large number of the Batmobiles there regularly. And the Batbike. Uh, and the Batbike comes with a Bat trailer. Anyway, let's move on. Ugliest car ever made in your opinions. Fiat Multipler. Second time we've had that on the podcast. So this was, uh, would you call it a people carrier? It had three seats in the front, didn't it? It did. I don't know what I would classify that thing as other than ugly. But it's funny that one of the previous podcast guests I had said that when it came out, they felt it was ugly. But now they actually quite like it. And it's a bit of a kind of guilty confession that they really like it. Have they updated their prescription on their glasses? I think they probably need to go see a psychiatrist, but uh, that's a different story. Um, Brad? Corvette yellow is just GM yellow, Eric. It's not Corvette yellow. So a yellow Aztec. Um, there was another one that just popped in there. You know why it's Corvette yellow? The Aztec was designed by the same guy that penned the C7 Corvette. So, boom. Talk about someone else who needs to go back to <laughs> a spec savers or equivalent. I'm going to stick with the Aztec. The Pontiac Aztec. That appears regularly on the podcast, believe it or not. It's a, it's yeah, a common favorite, including someone that actually rented one as a rental. I didn't even know you could rent Pontiac Aztecs back in the day. Rent a rent. Probably a one, one-way rental. Probably, yeah. <laughs> stick or auto. I'm, I'm the save the manual evangelist, so always stick. I was a save the manual evangelist until I could only buy the R32 in uh, DSG. But now I've kind of come around on the stick is a lot of fun, but I don't see it as a necessity. Would probably alleviate a lot of the driving issues we see on the road today if most cars were were manual. But that's a topic for another discussion. Any motoring heroes? Let's talk about people. Anybody from the Group B rally era, whether it's Ari Vatnin, Michel Mouton, Walter Rural, Dick Bloomfist, any of those guys. I mean, they did some absolutely incredible things when you look at the conditions that they raced in 40 years ago with the cars that they had at their disposal not just talking about the audi quattros but the peugeots the lancias all of them i mean just absolutely un- unbelievable now granted 
if we're talking goat, which we've talked about before, you put Senna and you put Schumacher up there, things like that. I've, I've thought about this for quite a while. There's one person in particular who I do want to interview, Hans Stuck, because he's done it all. If you think about factory test driver to Trans Am to IMSA to Le Mans, you know, Beetle Cup racing in the UK, you name it, he's done everything. He's driven everything. He's a wealth of information. And apparently he's a larger than life personality as well. And yeah. I would just love to meet him before he's no longer with us. Well, that's a good one. And and shout out to my friend Peter Gleason, who was on one of our episodes, because he's got one of his cars in his uh, collection. So Hans Stuck is, is the man for you. Brad? I don't have very many heroes, I guess, in the automotive world. But if I had to choose one person, I would say Christian von Koenigsegg. His innovative, think outside of the box mind is just amazing. The engineer of engineers, isn't he? He's a, yeah, yeah. You know, he's just a fascinating person. Who creates a car that has both an automatic and a manual gearbox in the same car? <laughs> pushing boundaries just for the sake of pushing boundaries and for the sake of innovation. Bless him. We need more people like Christian in our in our world, our automotive Agree. world. Favorite drives, and that could be a road drive or a track drive. Fictitious or has already happened? Where would you most love to drive? There is a bucket list track that I want to race on. And I think Brad knows where I'm going with this. And it's not going to be the one that everybody thinks, oh, you want to race at Yasmarina or you want to race at Coda or you want to go here, you want to go there. I want to run at Brands Hatch because I feel it's one of the most technical challenging tracks. It has such a great history. It just appeals to me in sim racing, in real life, watching races there, things like that. And I want to do it in, of all things, a Fiat 131 Abarth. Why the 131 Abarth? Because it's such a it's such a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's just this little sedan that's unassuming, minus you know the rally flares and things like that. But it's a screamer. It's built for a track like Brands Hatch. It's got really great weight distribution. It's high strung. Everybody that I've talked to says they're a lot of fun to drive. And I just you know I got to go back to my roots. You know, especially being Italian, I'm like I got to do it in either a Fiat or an Alfa Romeo, but I think the 131 is really the car for me. very first time I drove a car was at Brands Hatch. They used to run an early drive program where you could drive before the legal age, and they had uh, Ford Escort XR3Is. I've done Brands Hatch, but, uh, but not in I'm now extremely jealous of you, Dan. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's only a hop across the Atlantic, so get on it. Um, what about next, yourself, Brad? I'm going to say two things. One, I see Eric's Brands Hatch, and I, I, I'll do Brands Hatch, but I want to do it in a Mark 7 GTI Club Sport. Oh, it's a good one. Something modern. And then my next is my favorite race car of all time, the Corvette C7R at Laguna Seca. Very do good. You fit, do you fit in that, Brad? No. Well, maybe <laughs> with all the interior taken out and the seat bolted all the way back, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah, that, I would probably do fit. The custom Brad edition. Yeah, it's a it's a punchline to many jokes on our show. Do you fit in that, Brad? It sounds like uh, folks need to listen to more of your shows and then re-listen to this show. And there's probably about five or six jokes that they will uh, find uh, more insightful. Yes, Easter eggs. Definitely. Yeah, there we go. Some Easter eggs. So if folks want to, uh, you know, either listen to your podcast or get an understanding about some of the great work that you do in the car world, 
what are the best places to go find you? Well, very simply, go to our website, www.gtmotorsports.org. That's G as in Grand, T as in Touring Motorsports with an S dot O-R-G. And you can find all the latest articles and follow-ons and all the different segments that we carry on there. And then our podcast is available pretty much anywhere on the planet. We're on every service we can plug it into. So if you're an Amazon subscriber, Pandora, you listen to Spotify, Apple, Google, Ghana, <laughs> whatever we're available wherever you stream music or wherever you find podcasts and on social media you can find us pretty much everywhere at grand touring motorsports we spend a lot of time on the metaverse so facebook threads and instagram but you can also hop over to twitter where it's the only handle that's different than the rest of them at gt motorsports 14 very good and i will put these links in the show notes as well so um folks don't feel like if you're driving you have to stop pull over write them down they'll be in the show notes and if you'd like to support us in any way help keep the lights on and keep things going don't forget you can find extra content bloopers bonuses minisodes or pit stop minisodes and other extra goodies for our vips over at patreon.com forward slash gt motorsports Excellent. And I will put all this stuff in the show notes. So we will make sure that it's all included. Eric, Brad, thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed catching up with you guys and turning the tables on you and uh, having you as my guest instead of uh, me being your guest. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's always a little awkward being on the other end of the microphone, you know? It's different, isn't it? It's very different. Um, <laughs> oh, I was going to say, well, Danny, we have, we look forward to seeing you on another another Break Fix episode in the future as well. So thank you for everything you're doing in the autosphere. Yeah, I look forward to it. Look forward to it. This has been another episode of Danny P on Cars. Thanks for listening. <laughs>